Electricast. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. On this episode of Missing the Point, we're joined by sports columnist and author Dan Shaughnessy from the Boston Globe. Daniel shares some of his favorite stories from over 40 years of covering all the Boston sports teams, from the dominant Larry Bird-led 1980s Boston Celtics to the 2004 curse-breaking Boston Red Sox. We'll also get Dan's opinion on the current state of the Celtics and Red Sox and how ownership and management have made some unforgivable moves for both teams. This is Missing the Point, episode 48, but it's all relative. Welcome into Missing the Point. I am your host, Michael Marcangelo, joined alongside by Bob Kelly, Rayshon Buchanan, and today we have a very special guest. He has been a fixture in the Boston sports scene for five decades. His book, The Curse of the Bambino, details the heartache of the Boston Red Sox and their search for a World Series championship after selling Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. He subsequently wrote Reversing the Curse after the Red Sox won in 2004. And in 2013, he and Cleveland Indians manager Terry Francona released Francona, a biography focusing on Francona's years as manager of the Red Sox. That book immediately became a bestseller. He was named the 2016 recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, presented annually by the Baseball Writers Association of America for meritorious contributions to baseball writing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Shaughnessy. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's, we're really excited to have you, and I, we want to talk a little bit about the Red Sox and the Celtics. We have a couple of cool tidbits about the Celtics that I want to hear from you, but first things first, I think you know a lot of people on sports talk radio now, they, they, they kind of make it their job to be a contrarian. You were the original one in Boston. Yeah. I, I, so I, I'd love to, to learn or to hear about your story, especially when you're coming up you know, with Bob Ryan, who is a fan writer, right? He's a great writer, but he feels all the emotions that the highs and the lows. And you made it a point to kind of run this like a business. So I'd love to hear about how that went. Yeah, it's more, I'm more detached than Bob. And Bob's older than me. And, and I was reading him when I was in college and whatnot, and he's the greatest. And he, his knowledge is unsurpassed and he's a beautiful writer, but yeah, he's a season ticket holder. He comes to it as a fan, more kind of rooting for the teams. He's been critical, but when I came into it, my uh, directives were that you were you were objective, and I mean none of us are really objective about sports. We all have opinions, so we bring those to it, and that's the fun of it. But I just feel like you know my job isn't to root for the team. If I were covering the presidential election, I'm not supposed to choose a candidate and, and 
do the analysis based on who I want to win as much as give you the analysis of why it's going the way it's going. And that's what I try to do. Sometimes the better story is when the home team loses. And like right now, the Celtics are more interesting when they lose because like this year is not going to end well. I mean, it's not like there's going to be some turnaround. So when they play these games last night, if I'm writing them, it's better when they lose because you can slam them more and it's more fun and it's got more color and flavor. But so, yeah, I'm not a fan of the teams. I'm a fan of the sports. I like it when the local teams are in the playoffs. I got 12 parade covers here from page one when they win in this century. And it's always better when they win. People buy books and they have ideas. So that's good. But when things go bad, when Foxco Burris catches that pass in the end zone, they don't go 19 and 0. I can't be all brokenhearted and crying at my keyboard. So I can't write the story. I got to write that story and tell people why they didn't go undefeated. What happened here? And same thing when, you know, Aaron Boone hits the home run off Wakefield or the ground ball goes through Buckner's legs. Those stories are epic and you have to be able to write them under deadline in my case and not be emotionally grieving. It's like if you bet on the game, you're all pissed off and you're mad at the umpires or the officials when you're writing it. You don't want to be that guy. You should be able to bring analysis to it without the emotion of having your heart broken. So so that's the detachment that I bring to it that fewer and fewer people do now. I understand that. It's evolution. It's far more fans covering the teams now, like fans of the teams that are in the room. And I push back on that. But again, that's just the way things have evolved. Yeah, I just think about it because, you know, you were the reason that my dad used to actually get the Sunday Globe. He always wanted to read you and then always wanted to read Bob Ryan because they weren't all that they were told like polar opposite views. Right. But of the same thing. So, I, you know, you touched on the Celtics. I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. We'll get started there. You wrote an article back in the fall saying the Celtics aren't as good as they thought as they think they are. How good do you think they are right now? It's really messy right now. I mean, you know, there's individual talent there, clearly. I mean, Tatum's, the ceiling's really high for Tatum. He's great talent. And Brown's better than I thought he would be. And, and so that, it's two tremendous talents. And Smart is a guy you always have to have on the floor. Any team would want him. You can see those things. I love Thompson when he was in Cleveland, you know, inhaling rebounds, just great. We know what Kemba Walker was. There's a lot of individual talent there. They're not as talented as they were when Kyrie was there and Hayward, who was always hurt. And the two Jays were there. I mean, that's, you think about that team now, they were really talented then. And they made the finals of the conference three times in four years. But right now it's just, it's messy. You can tell they don't really seem to like each other. They're not tough. They're so soft at the end of these games. You can go over those games, Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, last night. You just know it's not going to go well. They, they can have a one possession game and three minutes to go. And the other team just kicks the crap out of them. They get all the 50-50 balls and, Offensive rebounds. It's this is there's no way this is what Brad Stevens is telling them to do. So guys are just going off on their own. It's a mess. Yeah, that leads me right to my question. In your opinion, whose fault is it then? Is it the players? You know, it's from what you just said, you don't seem to think it's Brad because obviously Brad's not telling him, listen, guys, go be soft and dog it the entire fourth quarter. Let's see some hero ball, Jason. Let's see that, you know. So what do you think? Where does the blame fall when it comes to this team? Well, Danny's got to be accountable for the roster building of what this team looks like. And I think he probably botched the Haywood thing. He got greedy on that. I mean, I think Danny's a really great talent evaluator and the drafting has been pretty good. And he has a great eye for talent. But the way this thing has been assembled is not good. And there's not a lot of accountability there. Nobody blames Danny. Nobody blames Brad. 
really nobody blames the players either. Everybody's always just kind of fat and happy over there, starting with ownership. It's an unusual franchise in our town. Because any other team was doing this, you'd have people with pitchforks storming the, the gates right now. So I have a question about that too, is when it comes to Brad and you say he's always happy and this team doesn't hold people accountable. To me, that's the one thing that drives me insane is when you see them blow one of these leads and Brad's up there still just, we did this, we did this, Kemba's our guy. I love him. I love it when he says that. But it's like, when are we finally going to see that from Brad? Do you think that's ever coming? Is that the kind of coach he is? It's not him. That's why he's probably better off in college or high school, whatever. He's the you know, bula bula guy, you're not going to get him, you know, turning over the food spread in the room and just kicking ass. That's just not him. So maybe he's too nice for this. It doesn't help that he's not an ex-player. He's not pop. He's not a guy with big, all this gravitas to it. And uh, it gets harder and harder to, to get guys to listen to you. So, but he's, he knows this is a failed experiment right now. Yeah. I mean, I sure hope he does, you know, and obviously, you know, you know, back to your point about Danny, I hope Danny, you know, feels the same way. And as far as his drafting, drafting goes when it's a top pick i feel like he does well right so obviously marcus smart at six in 2014 you know jalen and jays you know they both were the number three pick and they respect their drafts but if he has to draft anything past 14 it's really been hit and miss from james young you know uh yeah. gershon yeah but sadly it was just awful but but it leads into the question i want to ask is so you know what do you think they can do in the short term to kind of change the course? Or do you think they should, you know, just wait till the offseason to use the trade player exception and just try to fill uh, holes in the team, you know, there? Well, Rayshon, to your point, don't ever forget or forgive that it took Kelly Olenek instead of Giannis. Oh, right. Yeah, that too. Right. Exactly. That's, that's another one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I try, I try to forget that. Yeah. That's awful. Giannis, went, Giannis went like 15, so a lot of people passed on him. But still, that's one that we never let Danny forget because Kelly was two picks ahead of him. Right. I don't think they're going to use that trade exception. What they got tonight or tomorrow. I mean, I just think this is a lost year. I think they'll wait till the summer, let it shake out. I don't think you're going to see it now. I know there's talk about the kid in Orlando. There's talk about Collins. I don't see a move like that. I mean, I think that I think a shakeup's in order. And the, the summer shakeup, it could be Jalen Brown getting traded, something like that. You know, I mean, to me, that's still on the table. I don't know the contractual situations and it confuses me and all that, but I think since they're not going to change Danny or the ownership or the coach, you're going to have to shake up the roster and what would do it more than a big move like that. So what, you know, you've been covering the Celtics for a long time, right? Has there ever been a period since you've been in town where they've had this much talent and underperformed this significantly? Well, I mean, the, this is a long time. The 83 team, they were swept by the Bucks in the playoffs, and they had four Hall of Famers, you know, so they lost a 4-0 series. And they had Mikhail Parrish, Bird. They had Tiny Archibald. There's four Hall of Famers there. They were swept four straight. That was pretty bad. But they, I mean, they won 57 games during the season, so they weren't chumps. And they won the championship the next year when they acquired Dennis Johnson. But that would be the closest to being a dysfunctional. It was the end of the term for Bill Fitch before they switched coaches, and some things had to happen. And there was some really dark days in the 70s when they had, you know, McAdoo and Curtis Rowe and Sidney Wicks. And it was some dysfunction going on there. The end for Cowens, all that stuff. But this is a hard team to watch. Yeah. They are so soft at the end of these games. It just makes you want to kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget that Pelicans game is the one that stands out to me. Because even up 21, I was watching with my dad. Up 21, I looked right at him and went, 
they're going to lose this game. And he's yes. like, what are you talking about? I'm like, are you watching? It's just, it, it's so obvious sometimes, and you know it's coming. I was telling these guys, I've made a good amount of fake money off this team this year because of how predictable they really are when it comes to when they lose and when they win. If this team is favored in a game against an underachieving team, I bet against them 100% of the time. And I win 100% of the time. They're just so predictable and soft. I couldn't agree more. Before we uh, kind of transition to baseball, because we want to really pick your brain here, I did stumble upon a pretty cool story. And I was wondering if you could give us a little insight into it, Dan. So 1985 Easter Conference Finals, you notice that Larry Bird has taped two of his fingers together. And that I think you made the comment that it might be a little bit harder for him to shoot or shooting percentage would go down. And he challenged you to a free throw shooting contest with, with one of his hands wrapped. So I'd love just to hear a first person kind of how that went. Well, it's uh, now that we can, I can sell a little product here. I just wrote a book. <laughs> the book's called I Wish It Lasted Forever, Beyond November. So I, I had that team for four years every day. And in those days, it was nobody's fault. But the way it was then, we, we lived with them. We, we traveled, we waited for bags, hotels, buses, practice, everything. It was like being on the team without the groupies or the fame or the money. And other than that, it was the same thing. <laughs> so there we were, and you just got to know them, and we were able to tell the readers what they were like, and it's very rare time. So, yeah, they called me Scoop. That was my nickname. <laughs> Whenever I'd come into the locker room, you know, Larry would say, Scoop, do you ever notice how quiet it gets when you walk in here? You know, and uh, it was true, you know, because nobody trusted me. It was, you know, a very good system we had. So, yeah, he was taping it like this at practice. So he, there had been a barroom fight two nights earlier, and he, he might have had a broken bone. I don't know. But if you look up his playoff shooting, he shot 52% that year. It was his middle year of his three straight MVPs, height of his powers, the 60-point game, all that stuff, buzzer beaters left and right. And he got in a barroom fight, messed up his hand. He shot like 42% in the nine playoff games after this happened. But he was taping it like this at practice. And I said after, I said, you can't play in a game like that, right? He said, Scoop, I could tape my whole hand up, make more shots than you. And I'm like, that's probably true, but that's not what we're talking about here. And it was almost like a pool hustler thing. He kind of must have done it before. So they taped his hand like this. The thumb was taped. It was like he had a boxing glove on. And we did 100. He he said, we'll do 100 free throws, $5 a throw, 10 shots around. And he says, you want to go first or I'll go first? I said, I'll go first. He said, you don't like the pressure, do you? I said, that's right. So I went first. I made six out of ten. I was a good free throw shooter in high school. I, I sucked. I wasn't a player, but I could shoot free throws. Made six out of ten just standing around. And he made six out of ten doing this. And then by the time he got to the third round, because I was rebounding and they were all going to his, he said, I figured this out. And he did. <laughs> and he ended up making 86 with his hand like that. 86 out of 100. And I started choking because I'm seeing $5 bills flying through the air every time I'm letting go here now. And uh, so I lost $160 and went to the old Bay Bank and got 820s out of the ATM. And next night he was doing his early shooting. I gave him his money, he stuffed it in his sock. He played with my 820s in his sock that night. And I expensed this because I wrote a funny story about it. And I told my boss, I got the story came at some cost. I had to incur some expenses here. And evidently the word wager is frowned upon by the IRS. So it bounced back from accounting. So we switched it to eight twenty dollar lunches with Robert Parrish and, and just called it a day, and I got my money back. But uh, that, nice. that did in fact happen. So yeah, thanks for asking. You're welcome. 
Actually, keep it with that same year, because I, I know you brought up the game when you scored a 6 against Atlanta and New Orleans. You see the highlights, but I'm like, the highlights doesn't do it justice, man. Like, just how, how was that game? And just like, how hot was he? Were the, the Atlanta Hawks really just like, just fawning over how good he was? Yes. You can yes. see guys falling over the bench. He was, he was like invincible that year. He was at the height of his uh, trash talking powers. He would tell guys what he was going to do in the inbounds pass. Then he would do it. He started banking three-pointers just because he could for the fun of it. <laughs> and, you know, put his hand out for cash running down the other end of the floor. And McHale had gotten 56 nine days earlier. Yeah, against I, the I Pistons. guess. Yeah, short. Yeah. Wow. Larry was feeding him because Larry hated Kent Benson, who was an Indiana guy who disrespected him in college. So he let McHale torch Kent Benson and get him ejected from the game. Kept feeding McHale the ball. And Kev got to 56 and he came out with like a minute to go. And I said, well, Dan, you should stay in there because I'm going to get that. And then nine days later, we're in New Orleans because the Hawks played home games in New Orleans because they couldn't sell out the Omni in Atlanta. So we stayed at the New Orleans Hyatt and took a bus, went by Rick Roby's high school on the way, and Roby went to Kentucky, which was pissed off Larry because Kentucky didn't recruit Larry Burry. They thought he was too slow, so they took Roby, who was even slower. And Larry always said it was all bribes. So we went by the high school. He said, that's where Footer got all those bribes when he was in high school, right there. He was all fired up. And uh, we get to the gym, and it was all Celtic fans in New Orleans that night. And uh, yeah, they put the press right behind the Hawks bench. We were a little elevated. You can, we, we can see ourselves on that. And Mike Fratello was the head coach, you know, short little guy. And uh, Ricky Brown was a guy who had been a Celtic draftee. He was on that team. I mean, they had Dominique Wilkins. They, they, had, they had some great players. Uh, Doc Rivers is on that team. And it kind of grew. And then by the fourth quarter in the Hawks bench, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, you know. And they were like leaning into each other and celebrating and falling down. And Larry started like, going over to that side and just shooting right in front of them and just pointing to them and all that video. I mean, they're not making it up. It's true. The, the Hawks were actually fined for that. It was bad. And, and Fratello kept switching guys. He kept changing men and, and trying everything. And Fratello, he got into a little fight with Ricky Brown. We saw the whole thing. And when it was over, the GM of the Hawks came into the Celtic locker room with the game ball and had Larry sign it. It was like a souvenir for the Hawks. So, yeah, he just dropped 50 in our heads. You know, it was like, yeah, that, that all happened. It was good uh, times. What, what, what an honor, right? <laughs> good times. Is he yeah. the only player that you've ever seen reach that level where he he starts just playing around in the middle of games? Yeah, the, the talking was off the charts. We could hear it because in those days we said, I've got pictures I'm using in this book where we're sitting right, you know, where they where those people pay a thousand bucks now. Like we were there with our table right there. And the worst was the Julius Irving. Julius was 36 years old, and Larry was in the middle of this three-year MVP at the height of his powers. And I mean, Julius would have toyed with Larry Bird in his heyday, but he was cooked, and Larry was dominant. He was bigger and stronger. And Larry had like 38 in the second half, or 38 by the third quarter. And Julius was like one for nine. And Larry was just, get somebody out here, old man. You can't guard me. And finally, Julius went for his throat. There's a famous picture there. They're grabbing each other by the throat, and it was a Donnybrook, and it did not end well. I love it. That that could never happen now. Guys would be kicked out the league. You know. Oh my God! Well, basically, like uh, like Kermit Washington, right back in the day when he did to. Oh um, well, yeah. To Rudy Tom- I mean, that was a little different over Rudy Tom- Jonathan. Take a look at the McHale takedown of Rambus in Game Four, of the '84 Finals, when McHale comes across mm-hmm. the floor and clotheslines Rambus. Rambus's foot almost hits the rim. He's still upended, <laughs> and it was two shots. There was not even a flagrant rule then. They had to change the rules uh, all around on that. So uh, that, that did happen. And, yeah, uh, common foul, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've been part of so many legendary moments in Boston, but I don't think there's ever been one more important than the 2004 
World Series, right? So before the Sox win that, I want to ask you a, a question. Before that World Series and the curse is reversed, which Red Sox playoff moment gave you the biggest heartbreak as someone who is either a fan of the sport or covering the team? You know, I, I, I kind of, I'm not old enough to have been there in the 40s when all that stuff happened. But so I was at the Bucky Dent game in 78. That was crazy. And that was horrible for Boston because they had had a 14 game lead and they blew it and ended up in a tie and a one game playoff and had a two nothing lead in the sixth, sixth inning was awful. And then the Buckner game is the worst one because, you know, again, it wasn't game seven. People think it was, but, you know, they're, they're one strike away from winning the World Series and they hadn't won in 68 years. It's against the Mets. And it's Saturday night in Shea Stadium, and the game's over. They got a 5-3 lead. There's two outs, nobody on base in the bottom of the 10th. All they got to do is get one more out. And then three straight singles, wild pitch, and then the error. That was the worst, Buckner's legs, because the World Series was over. They had won, and they somehow astronomically lost. And, of course, the Aaron Boone game, because, you know, that's what Brady left Pedro in too long. And there was a lot of tension at that time. The teams were still popular. A-Rod, there had been a big fight to who's going to get A-Rod, and all this stuff went down. And it was never a greater rivalry than by 03, 04 when it was going on then. So having witnessed those three was a lot to bring into the 04 season when, of course, they're down 3-0 to the Yankees. It's still the greatest Boston sports story. I mean, the first Patriot Super Bowl is pretty darn good. But the Sox going, you know, 86 years and being down 3-0 to the Yankees in the ALCS with A-Rod having been on both teams technically and just all the fights they had and beanball stuff they had and the great players, you know, Manny and David and Jeter. That was the height of it. That brings me to an article that you wrote right before game four of that day. I'll see. That's the Millar thing. The, <laughs> the Millar thing. Yeah. I, I got to ask you, man, what did he say to you? Because I know there's the clip where he's saying, you know, Dan, you called us frauds. You did this. We're not frauds. We're going to win tonight. Was there more to it or is that what happened? Well, I mean, the article, I, I, shelf of stuff here it was it was a hypothetical so they lost game three they lost 19 to 8 in game three they're down 3-0 that was that was a great team that team was a wagon and they were down 3-0 to the yankees in the alcs losing 19 to 8 and people were throwing shit at them and booing them it was bad and so the next day is game four and they're gonna they're going down like just dying it's horrible so i in the paper i said if they get swept. They will go down as the biggest pack of frauds in Boston sports history. <laughs> that statement was true then. It's true today. It's a hypothetical. If I were seven feet tall, I would have been in the NBA. You know, I mean, it's you say it said if they lose again, they go down as frauds. Well, they didn't. They won eight straight games from the moment I wrote that. And they swept their way to the World Series. So anyway, it was true then. It's true now. And Millar was saying that stuff. That whole thing about don't let us win tonight. He was saying that to everybody. You know, and his whole thing about Shill and Pedro and anything can happen in Game Seven. He was just saying that to everybody, and whatever. I think that was ESPN thirty for thirty, but they had the crew following everybody around, and we went hard at Theo that night. You know, Theo was hung over, and it was a lot of. It was just a bad time for them, and uh, nobody thought what was going to happen was going to did happen. But so Millar was just talking up everybody and did a good job with it, and so that clip lives on in infamy, and I'm actually quite proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> you should be because because it's awesome it gives me goosebumps every time i see it dan so i love it just to still kind of keep the theme with the past so another question that i thought about and you know because i love to talk about different scenarios and what if so so if you could put together a starting nine you know for an all red Sox team like who would you have on it 
Oh, that's good. Rayshon, I think I did that a few years ago, and I'm trying to remember now. So, I mean, Carlton Fisk is the catcher in the Hall of Fame. And we got Wade Boggs is the third Hall of Famer. And we got the outfield, we got Jim Rice, Carl Yastrzemski, and Ted Williams, all Hall of Famers. Bobby Doors, the second baseman Hall of Famer. Jimmy Fox, the first base Hall of Famer. And the shortstop's Joe Cronin. Those are all Hall of Famers. And Pedro would be your starting pitcher. So you got... There's nine Hall of Famers, and David Ortiz would be your DH, and he will be in the Hall of Fame. So that'd be ten players right there. Would Manny wow. be an honorable mention? Because I'm like, I, I was like, you know, you know, that's more than fair because Manny's Manny's a better hitter than than Carl Yastrzemski or Jim Rice. I mean, he just is. But yeah, he's, you know, the, with the three time Royds thing, he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. But as a pure hitter, yeah, and defensively, Rice wasn't that good either. Manny's certainly serviceable out there. Right. I mean, and plus, I know Rice was also MVP. I don't think Manny ever won MVP. Manny never did. Rice had 406 total bases in 78, which hadn't been done in 30 years. So I, I think for pure hitting, I would take Manny. Manny was just, you know, Manny was Jimmy Fox as a pure right handed hitter. And I mean, obviously, you know, Man- Manny was our guy. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that, you know, obviously, you know, you saw Yashemsky, you saw, is, is Yaz to you the best left fielder then? Or, or was it Ted? For, for all around defensively, but, you know, he's only like a career 285 hitter. I mean, he's a little, he just had a lot of compiled numbers, like longevity. And 67 was the greatest single season of any Red Sox player. You know, triple crown MVP, defensive gold glove, seventh game of the World Series, just his, all. you know, he's seven for eight in the last two games they had to win, all that stuff. But, the he was never he didn't have a, a five-year stretch like Manny Ramirez had you know I mean hardly anybody Ted Williams did but Manny yeah. right right exactly yeah I, I know with Manny like I know like before he got to Boston he had a season where he had like 165 runs batted in Manny was nuts go look at the go look at the Cleveland team Manny was hitting seventh for Cleveland team they yeah. had Tommy Alomar Albert Bell Eddie Murray yeah. Tommy you know Roberto Just, Alomar you know Omar Vizquel is one of the greatest teams of all time that didn't win so you just mentioned nine Hall of Famers, and then you mentioned David Ortiz, which spawned this question. Does David Ortiz get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and how does he but not Barry Bonds? Well, David's sailing in. Everybody loves David. So I agree with I, the sentiment of what I think you're asking. I, yeah. I think it's unfair. And I think, for me, you either let them all in or you don't let anybody in. Yep. And so far, I've been, don't let any of them in. So I won't be voting for David, but he's getting in. And I understand why, and the numbers are certainly there. But to your question, yeah, I mean, I don't think Barry's any dirtier than David was, if you want to go down that path. I mean, it's just, but this is the this is the times they played in, and a lot of people don't care about, it, and I understand that. What about Clemens then? Yeah, I was just going to say, if we're going to open that door, yeah, I got to like, Yeah, because yeah, Cle- I mean, Clemens, I mean, his Red Sox career alone, to me, is, is Hall of Fame worthy. Yes, I know oh, he, he gets won 192 games, three Cy Youngs to the Red Sox, but... I, I, I don't vote for him because, I again, I, I've been on the wall. I don't vote for any of them. I love Roger. You know, he's great. And he did a lot of good things here. And, I mean, he's one of the top 10 pitchers of all time by any measure. I mean, guy won 354 games and seven Cy Young Awards. Give me a yeah. break. I wish he hadn't used at the end to extend extend it when unnecessarily, you know. So I, I have a question about that, though. So that whole era, right, is everyone's tainted from it, no yeah. matter what, for that whole 90s, 2000s era. Anyone who's ever going to get into the Hall of Fame is always going to kind of have that cloud over them in that era. Don't you just think that a simple solution could be is let them in, but make sure it's on the plaque. Make sure it's indicated that they're in, but this happened, and this is a question that we have about it. They're still one of the best players ever. Well, again, a Hall of Fame that includes Trevor Hoffman and Harold Baines 
and does not include Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, <laughs> it's a little ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. so we know that, but that's the hand that's dealt. It's unfortunate. And my fear is that Bonds and Clemens are going away forever next year. It's the last year in the ballot for them. They don't, they're not getting the momentum. I don't think the old times will vote for them. And it's, it's a big gap to not have those guys in the Hall of Fame because they were better than everybody in the time they played. They were. How, how ironic is it that the players that really saved the game for everyone in the 90s, right? Yeah. Uh, Sosa uh, you have McGuire. and Barry Bonds that are ostracized and kept out for doing the thing that propelled the sport back into the fan of, of America. Right, and there's a very likelihood that Piazza, Pudge Rodriguez, Bagwell were all using because they all look dirty and they're all yeah. in. But they didn't test or they didn't have – they're not in the Mitchell Report. They didn't have the stigma that these other guys have. I thought Pudge. I thought Pudge was on the Mitchell Report, wasn't he? Pudge Rodriguez. I, I don't remember him. I know Paul Merrill. Paul Merrill was, but I mean, but Bagwell in particular. I mean, because didn't, didn't he start here? Didn't he get drafted by the Red Sox? Bagwell was traded, traded by the Red Sox. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah. If, if you look at him, how small he was early on, and then by the time they became the Killer Bees, <laughs> you know, with him, Biggio, and yeah. Berkman, it was like, oh, this this guy really was a wagon for the wrong reason. <laughs> Guys got good knowledge for young guys. I'm impressed here. Thank you. Oh, Thank appreciate you. it, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Some would say we're not so young anymore, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Dan, what are your expectations of the 2021 Red Sox now that Alex Cora is back? I like Alex. I don't hold that against him. I mean, probably we should more than we do. And people, he's just, he's just really, he's a good guy and he's good to be around. He was cheating. I don't know. I just can't get all in a big lather about We're it. We're used I, to I, it I in Boston by now. No, I should. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't vote for him. I wouldn't vote him into the Hall of Fame. So he's out of that. Right. But, but as a manager, given the shit show they got here and the horrible decision making and the cheapness up top and what they're doing to the franchise, he's good for them. These players like him. They respond to him. Him being bilingual is huge. A guy like Devers will get way more out of Devers. It just is. And I would want to play for him. You know, he's just a good guy to play for. I just, the starting pitching is very suspect still in my view. You can make a case, but everything's got to go just right. And people like get all in a lather about, oh, Nathan Evaldi throws 100. He's won nine games here in three years. <laughs> He's always hurt. Everyone just remembers that one run. Yeah, he had one, one great postseason performance in a game which they lost, by the way. And, and you know, he makes $17 million or over four, you know, yeah, $54 four million years, yeah. for four mm-hmm. years. So good for Nathan Evaldi, good guy. Maybe he'll finally get healthy and win 18 for you because he's got that ability. We know, you know, Eddie Rodriguez coming off the COVID, the, my, the cardiac thing, hopefully. And, he, uh, and he's, he's your good. opening day starter too. Garrett Richards. I mean, he's never been a winner. He's been hurt all the time. Pavetta looks, has won like eight games in like five years. And Perez is a meatball artist. He pitches to contact, as they say, you know. I mean, he, he Yeah, which he is cool for he sucks. A lot of that. <laughs> so, right. he's, yeah. so he's Derek Lowe 2.0. He finds a lot of bats. No, Derek, Derek, Derek Lowe was much better than Martin Perez. Derek Lowe was much better. Rayshon's right again. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I still want to keep with the current team, right? So, obviously, this guy was one of the main pieces coming back in the uh, Mookie Best trade last year. How do you feel about Alex Verdugo? I'm a fan. He was much better last year than I thought he was going to be. So, do you think he's someone that can be a mainstay here going forward? I, I like what I saw last year. I was pleasantly surprised. I was bothered that the Dodgers gave up on him the way they did. I thought, you know, they didn't have to give up anything in that deal. That was the Red Sox were driven to get rid of payroll. So it's not like they, the Dodgers were in a position of strength and they gave him up very readily. That bothered me. You know, he's a little dirty in that sex scandal thing they had there. There's something not right about that that's never been fully explained. So 
I hope he's got everything on the straight and narrow and it's all good. He is a character. We haven't been able to be what little I saw when we were around him. I liked, I think, players respond to him. He's a very cocky kid, you know, and his ability. I love his swing. And I, I just, I don't think he's as good as he thinks he is or his fans think he is, but, <laughs> yeah. but there's something there. I just, I'm reluctant to, to anoint him just yet because so yeah. many things, I mean, Carl Everett was the best player you ever saw for like four months at the beginning of the 98 season, whatever, you know, <laughs> it was amazing, yeah. Before. yeah. And then as soon as he had to butter the ref, the, uh, the umpire, yeah, it was yeah, over. Yeah. It was but, over. But this, this kid has, this kid's got something and hopefully it gets steered in the right direction. So, Dan, you know, you just said that we really know our stuff. I appreciate that. I hope that you, you still feel this way after I ask this question because it just came to my, my mind. You know, the, the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry was so great up until 2004, right? So, would you rather have those days of that rivalry being at that peak or still win that World Series and have it go away? Because it's not there anymore. I don't think that the common mm-hmm. generation really cares about Red Sox-Yankees as much as they used to. You know, it's a really good question, and I think that – you know, we always said when it when they won, it'll never be the same, and it hasn't been, and it sucks now because they're bordering on irrelevance. But I do think that there's almost nothing they could have done to have avoided where we are now. Just the way the game has trended, the slowness of it, young people with their devices and the speed with which they want it, how it's not the friend of, of fantasy. It's just... It's people's t- attention spans. It doesn't lend itself to today's today's young people. And I understand that. It's asking a lot. So the older fans are dying off and not going to be replaced. And that's bad. So I don't think there's much the Sox could have done about it. So I'll, I'll take those years when we had them and say that that was the height of, of that. And it was never going to be as good again, no matter what they did with drafting or signing or trading or whatever. I just don't think they could have sustained the level of intensity that we had on that thing. It was too much to sustain. Yeah, I, I just remember like every game mattered in like 03, 04, even 02 yeah. when they missed the playoffs and they went 93 and 69, right? Like they, they had a pretty, they were pretty relevant for that three year stretch. And now, if you would have told me that 17 years later, that people in, in this area would value them below the Bruins, Patriots, yeah. it's wild to me. I think storylines are what keeps people invested. And they just haven't been able to keep that up. I think, you know, with the Yankees winning and, and, and having that nice little rivalry with, with the Phillies in 08, 09, that was fun. But we've never right. come across them again. So do you think that it's like the flick of a switch that if we see the Yankees in the ALCS, we can tap into it again? You could approximate, but you're never going to get to that level again. It would just be better than now. But you're not going to go back to that level ever. Well, I mean, we, we did. I know we faced them in 2018 and in, in division round. That was a great yeah. series. Um, the the only moment or the two moments I remember most in that series is the uh, the JD Martinez home run in, in game one, and then obviously Brett Holt getting the home run to complete the cycle. And I mean, basically that crowd in Yankee Stadium was dead, right? Like it's it's not the same where you know uh, Yankee Stadium is not the same as it was in. In, in 03 and 04, obviously, because it's the new fans, like like you said. But, yeah, man, I, I mean, even I was even thinking about that 99 series, too. Like, Roger, <laughs> Roger. Like, <laughs> yep. you, you'll, 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 never, you'll never get that. that is his best. Yeah, well, the Great greatest question. thing from 18 was the Saturday when the Yanks won here. And Sanchez hit a home run to center field, one of the longest home runs ever. And Judge, I'm sure, shared that night. And that was the night Judge went by with New York, New York, and the jukebox by the Sox by the Sox clubhouse there with the boom box. And that was like the, the highlight of the series. And the Red Sox just went there and just kicked the crap out of them. Oh, that thousand runs. That was it. Yeah. That team was so good though, which, was- which leads me to a question I have to ask you. 
Mookie Betts, man. So them giving up Mookie Betts. I thought I was going to watch Mookie Betts in a Red Sox uniform until I was in my 40s and 50s. Like, I thought this dude was going to be a mainstay. He was one of the best players I've ever seen in Red Sox uniform. And all of a sudden, it's the team that makes the most money in baseball is cutting payroll and can't pay this dude. Can you make that make sense to me? Like, I know you said that they were going to give him up for nothing and they actually got a good return for him. But, like... Why did that have to happen? Was it, did Mookie not want to be here? Like, what was the case? Yeah, I have no forgiveness for them. So don't misinterpret what I said earlier. Like, they've tried to uh, get the lo- local media to push the narrative. Well, he wasn't staying anyway, so we had to do what we could do. That That's bullshit. If you read his thing, it's GQ right now. Like, he, he was buying a house here. They wouldn't meet his price. They wouldn't pay. They wouldn't meet his price. That was it. It was all about money, and I understand that. It was his time to strike. He did. They weren't willing to meet it. And then, you know, they finished in last place with the worst team since 1965. The Dodgers win the World Series. They got exactly what they deserved. And that thing will never be right. There's no excuse for it. If you're going to own the Boston Red Sox and have an investment of $700 million turn into $7 billion in 20 years, then you have to keep that asset. And you have to invest in that and overpay if that's what it takes so that the second half of the contract will be rendered meaningless and all that stuff. Say that. But don't have Tom Warner go on and say what, what idiots the Dodgers are for doing this that the money won't be worth it in 15 years. Bullshit. You, you know, the Red Sox are more than a business. They're a, a public domain, you know, public entity, public trust that, that whoever owns it has to value that. And they had to, it was incumbent on them to keep them. That's on them. Shame on them. And David Price, they're paying $16 million for David Price to pitch for the Dodgers this year <laughs> and last year. I mean, he didn't even pitch, but it's like these salary dumps for the Boston Red Sox, unforgivable. And they're going to tell you that we have the third highest payroll this year, so stop it. But that's because of all the dead money, which is Price, Pedroia, Benatendi. They have dead money. That's on them. Avaldi, in effect, is dead money. It's $17 million for not a lot for three wins. Yeah, so dead, that's dead on too. Chris Sale, who they gave the money to. So bad decisions don't take away the notion that they're cheaped out. Every option they've had over the last 12 months, they've gone for the lowest salary guy, except for Richard's but we don't know if he's any good or not. They did the same thing with Lester though, right? Remember when he went over, yep. when he left and they said, well, they, we wouldn't, have, exactly. he, he wouldn't have stayed if we tried. And Just then they tried. overpaid for Price and Sale and yeah. Baldy after not giving Lester the money. Right. Like, how about you just try? I know that we're kind of wrapping up here, Dan. I wanted to ask you my final question. You know, we've seen over the last, I think it's been rapidly over the last 20 years that print media has really just taken a backseat. And those that were prominent before are no longer, right? There's been a big fallout. Now everyone is a an influencer, which pisses me off. How do you think you have managed to stay at the top of your game and so relevant through all of these changes? Well, I mean, there would be some argument to the relevance of myself at this time by a, a portion of the population out there. And that's that's Okay. Like, I'm not relevant on talk radio anymore. They want young, hot takes and all that. And that's fine. I had enough of that. And the Globe thing, my audience is older. And I think even the haters kind of keep the thing going. It's sustained a little bit. So, and, but the takes are, they are how I feel at the time. They're not generated to be clickbait or it's just how I feel at the time. And some of it's provocative for people, but it's just sports. We should be able to argue about Manny Ramirez and Jim Rice and not dislike each other. I've always said that. It's not... It's okay. That's what sports is supposed to be. So I'm I'm good with it. I appreciate the question. The print thing, like like one thing, like we talked about this Duxbury High thing. It used to be you could go do a high school story on the quarterback at Marshfield and you could change his life by being in the Boston Globe. Can't do that anymore. Like that yeah. kid's already online. He's got 
you know, hoop.com or whatever, and their lives are their lives and they don't care about us. And I understand that. So we don't have the platform or the reach that we used to have. I'm okay with it. It's evolution. You can't bay at the moon. Like Barstool is more popular than we are. And I don't like that, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I just skate in my lane here and doing the best I can. And I, you know, it's, I have energy about it. I, I like the sports. I love the platform. And, you know, writing a book on 40 years ago, the Celtics was really fun. And people will actually read it because they're yeah. only Larry Bird story. So, again, I'm blessed. I got to read and talk about sports for 40 years in this market with 12 championships in this century and some of the losses and just, and, and you know, young folks like yourselves who know so much about sports and still want to talk about it. So I just feel really lucky and, and blessed about it. And I try not to complain too much about it. it's not the way it used to be because too bad. It's things evolve. Well, obviously, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Before we let you go, we want to always uh, let you tell people where they can find you. And you already you already gave us a little bit of a preview of an upcoming book in November. So please tell uh, the listeners out there where they can find you and what they can expect from you over the next couple of months. Yeah, go down to 7-Eleven and get the Boston Globe tomorrow morning. I think it's two bucks. <laughs> Good luck with that. Hold me up the paper. Right, right. You know, but no, so like Boston.com, whatever the hell, BostonGlobe.com, whatever we are and. I'm on Twitter, Dan underscore Shaughnessy on Twitter. And yeah, wish it lasted forever. Uh, uh, Simon & Schuster, Scribner, Publishers, November, old days with the Celtics and Larry Bird and all that stuff. But you guys are fun. It was nice uh, nice chat with you guys. I wish you luck with the program. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Missing the Point. So for Rayshon Buchanan, uh, Bob Kelly, and Dan Shaughnessy, this is Michael Marcangelo signing off. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast Podcasts and... Hear the culture. Electric acid. Electric acid.